Hi, this is Steve Hargadon, and welcome to the Future of Education. It's Tuesday, February 7th, 2012, and our special guest tonight is the Unplugged Mom, Lorette Lynn. Lorette, thanks for being here. How are you, Steve? Thank you for having me tonight. So glad. I, I hope this picture is okay. Yeah, it's fine. See, I, I liked it better than the ones on your website to give us a sense of kind of who you are. Sure. The Future of Education is sponsored by my Web 2.0 Labs project at web20labs.com, and uh, we're giving support use of this room by Blackboard Collaborate. Uh, the new user community for Collaborate is at wecollaborate.com. Coming up at the queue in the ISTE shows, do be sure to come to the unplugged versions. It's kind of a coincidence, Lorette, that you're on and use that name as well. This will be the fifth anniversary of our activities around uh, these shows, both of which started with EduBloggerCons five years ago. The EduBloggerCon is being renamed Social EdCon. It is an all-day unconference of an enormous amount of fun. Uh, this is the first year we're doing an all-day unconference at Q as well. You're going to have to trade out with regular sessions, but uh, we are going to have something going on all of that first Thursday of the conference. Uh, and then Q on Friday, we're going to have the, uh, the live streaming of sessions where anybody can sign up to present, whether or not you've ever been accepted by Q. Uh, and then Saturday, the uh, Bloggers Cafe will continue. So ISTE is just as much fun, but magnified about 10 times because of the attendee list. So please be sure, if you're going to ISTE, do not miss this. They're all free activities. They're really a lot of fun. We're going to have a birthday cake at Social EdCon for five years. Uh, really a f fun fun time to celebrate. It's interesting to me, if you look back at the people who attended the first EduBloggerCon, a really significant percentage of them are now main speakers at the ISTE conference. And I think our community can take some pride in that. Classroom 2.0 is also celebrating its fifth anniversary. And part of our activity there is that we're doing a book. So we've put out a call for for chapter submissions on a treasury of Classroom 2.0 activities. Uh, we will publish every entry. Uh, we will select some number of those that are published on the web to go into a physical book. Um, it really should be a lot of fun. Go to classroom20.com, click on the book. We've also started something new called Ed Incubator, a way for educational startups to get uh, authentic teacher councils and audiences. And PBS NewsHour is our first client Anyway, that's at Ed Incubator at the top of classroom20.com also. If you've always wanted to give PBS NewsHour some feedback on their um, educational programs, they're dying to hear from you. Coming up uh, in our worldwide conferences, we are going to have a fifth anniversary celebration for Classroom 2.0. We haven't decided when to do that yet. There is going to be a 12-hour gaming and education worldwide conference on April 26th should be really fun. News on this should come out uh, next week. Alt-EdCon, Loretta and I are supposed to be planning. We have dates, the Alternative Education Conference, May 10th to 12th, also a virtual conference worldwide and free. The Libra Future of Libraries Conference, Libraries 2012, will be October 3rd through the 5th. And the 2012 Global Education Conference, November 12th through the 16th. All of these events are free. Just be sure to be signed into classroom20.com and you'll get notifications of all of them. 
We have a great schedule of interviews coming up. Lots of new interviews scheduled in the last day or two. Uh, in addition to all the ones that you've seen before, Dennis Lidke is going to come on and talk about Big Picture Schools on the 24th. Uh, you know about David Weinberger and Mimi Ito and Kathy Davidson. Uh, new on this list is Mark Tucker on his book, Surpassing Shanghai. It should provoke a lot of interesting response. This is looking at the PISA tests. Uh, Tracy Willen Dalganti on her book, Society 3.0. John Hunter is going to come on and talk about his world piece of the fourth grade achievements, this amazing thing he does in a film that's coming out uh, in May. Larry Johnson talks to us about the Horizon Report, Buffy Hamilton and Kristen Fontichiaro on school libraries, their uh, e-book, their free e-book. Mark Bauerlein, who's been on the show before, is going to come back and stir up some more conferences controversy with his book, The Digital Divide, What's Working on the Web and What's Not. And Elizabeth Merritt talks to us about the future of museums. I'm just so excited I can't contain myself. If you've missed the show, they are all recorded. We've had over 250 shows. Uh, we heard last week from Barbara Bray, Kathleen McClaskey, Shannon Miller, and Lisa Nielsen uh, about uh, personalized learning plans. Lisa's name is somewhere down that list. I didn't repeat it again. Cable Green talked to us about uh, open policy, the open, the obviousness of open policy. Fascinating. David Lurcher on learning commons, personal learning environments, hoping to bridge the library world in, in that and other sessions. Okay, so now we're going to give you a chance to indicate where you're listening from. To the left of the whiteboard, you should now see some icons. You're looking for the star or the sun, the second one down. Click on that, and we have to double click and then click on the map. And we'd love to have you put a shout out in the chat to let us know. Lisa, am I still coming through soft and gravelly? I'm not trying to be sultry, but let me know how my audio is. <laughs> if anybody else is having trouble with my audio, let me know and I'll if I can't make an adjustment. Welcome, Australia. Welcome, Bill. North America, South America, Asia. This is a hard time for Europe and Africa. We know what it is time-wise. Wherever you're listening from, or if you are listening to the podcast, we sure appreciate you joining us. Lorette, so fun to have you here. Are you there? You have to turn your mic back on. Oh, we've lost Lorette again. <laughs> okay. I'm going to pause the recording so those listening to it don't have to listen to all this. Apparently, so. So we have the recording back on. We'll Lorette, I will. You. Lorette is now coming through by telephone. Her cable internet is down, but uh, we are prepared, and so uh, we're really delighted to have you here. There'll be a slight lag because of the bridge between the audio, um, the telephone, and the audio of our session. But um, it just, I just will apologize in advance if I speak over you. That's fine. I understand. Okay, so I feel like part of what I do, Lorette, is to bridge some different worlds. Um, we talked about sort of the, the interest I have right now in libraries and museums and bringing guests on 
for, for that. I've also brought on guests related to homeschooling and unschooling. And I have a little bit of background here because we did some kind of um, choosy homeschooling for our own kids. We did it when we felt that it worked and was important for us. So uh, as, a, as a partially homeschooling dad, I felt like there were there are a lot of things that we learned homeschooling that have really been applicable to the larger educational conversations. Now, I, I know you'll want to kind of describe the difference between homeschooling, unschooling, and unplugging. So why don't we start there? Well, you know, there is no significant difference besides just in uh, perception and how those things are perceived. Unschooling was a, a phrase that was coined, a term that was coined by John Holt back in the 1970s. And basically, simply put, what he meant is just not doing what the school is doing. Over the years, uh, as it became more and more popular and it became more and more trendy, it's developed its own, its own particular uh, methodology and own, some would say own particular dogma. Um, so it really depends upon who you talk to as far as getting a definition for unschooling. But at its core, really all it means is just not doing what the school is doing. Homeschooling, you know, I, I usually try not to use the term simply because, again, because of its perception. Things have definitions, but then society gives them definitions. So you have to kind of go with that. It's all the art of language, if you will. Uh, we trying to stay away from doing what the school does. Now, I don't particularly call it unschooling because of all the definitions that it's gotten, and I just feel like there are so many things out there that have become their own systems that I have tried to make an effort with my family to unplug from that, and that's really where the word unplugged came from, and it's, it's kind of like a tongue-in-cheek reference to the matrix, unplugging from the matrix. Because to me, it goes, it's so much more than just academics. The, the problem runs deeper than that in society, uh, you know, being that the school system, in my view, would be the root of economic breakdown and social breakdown and sociopolitical problems that we're having because the, of the maleducation that we're receiving as a society from an indoctrinated school system. So I just decided with my family that we were going to disconnect from that and we were going to recognize that learning is simply a natural extension of parenting and what my children learn and how they uh, discover their world and how they learn academics and how they learn about life and how they adjust to their, their own world is part of my responsibility as their parent. It's a natural extension of parenting. And that's pretty much why I decided to do it in the first place. And as years went by, I became a, an advocate for home education and uh, tried to talk to different people and convince them uh, of the benefits of home education over the school system and so on and so forth. We got unplugged, and that's, that's kind of what I do now and where I'm at. So uh, I've had John Taylor Gatto on the show. Um, you know, I've read sort of extensively about this. We participated as homeschoolers. And I actually think, you know, without, again, quibbling over phrases, we were probably unschoolers for a period of time. Um, but it does take a certain amount of time to get to the place where hearing you say 
maleducation has created a lot of our society's problems without kind of flinching, right? I mean, I think there's sort of a normal, natural response or reaction from people. You know, how can you be critical of our traditional public education? This um, explanation of education as a conformance, kind of brainwashing process. Um, uh, there are those who believe it's intentional. There are those who believe it's sort of the result of our desire to seek kind of social grouping. Where, where do you fall in the descriptions of how we got to this place? You know, it is, it's an uncomfortable topic, and it's an uncomfortable question for most people. And I've, I've had to come to terms with the fact that I'm going to say uncomfortable things. I'm going, if I'm going to be honest about who I am and uh, be honest about what I'm saying based on what I've learned, then I had to realize that I'm going to make some people uncomfortable. But the fact of the matter is that's the only way to really reach uh, uh, the point where we're, we're breaking through and we're, we're getting to the core of the truth and we're getting to the core of the knowledge. And yes, I have, based on what I've learned and based on what I've read, and also I've done interviews with John Taylor Gatto, and I've read all of his work, and I, I've just done an incredible amount of studying not only education, but history and civics and government and economy and understanding. And it, after all these years, it's been about 10 years now, I finally come to the conclusion that this is not a lot of the understanding of history and economics and uh, just social political awareness is not taught in our education system. And it was difficult for me to embrace the reality that it, it may very well be on purpose. So, yes, I, I do usually tend to agree with. John Telegato, in that it has been on purpose. One of his books is called uh, Dumbing Down. And then there's another book by Charlotte Iserby called The Purposeful Dumbing Down of America. And these are very insightful reads because when you study this and when you go down this route, you start to put all the dots together and you start to make the connections and you learn about the nefarious history of public education and how it started and how it all began. And it was all about the banker, bankers and politicians and corporate interests. It was never really about uh, an academic benefit for the children. It was really about just creating obedient citizens that will go forth into the world and become consumers and become workers and just really perpetuate the cycle. And now we're in this point in society where we have you know, social problems and unemployment and the average person doesn't really understand civics and doesn't really understand the economy or what fiat money is or uh, how the banking system actually works. And it seems like a stretch. It seems like a conspiracy theory. It seems crazy to say that it was on purpose, but how else could it have happened if we had learned from the very beginning? I mean, think about it. We're being put into this system when we're four or five years old. Uh, everything we know about the world is being spoon-fed to us by a system that perpetuates itself. So it, it, I realize that it's a stretch for a lot of people, and it might sound crazy at first, but then after you think about it for a little while, it doesn't sound so crazy anymore. And you, you kind of realize that, yeah, you know what? I'm the parent. How come I'm not doing this? Why am I handing my child over for someone else to do it? Because I believe that I can't, and who taught me that I can't? 
you know? So you just dig one layer after the other, and you uncover like you're peeling an onion, only in the middle of an onion there's nothing. In the middle of this, there's truth. So this, this goes deep into the territory that I find fascinating. In part, I think uh, we have difficulty with the idea that schooling was created for what you're calling a nefarious purpose. One, because most of us know school teachers who are not nefarious. And two, it seems like a lot of this was set in motion uh, you know, long enough ago that it's easy to, to sort of think, OK, so the system then self-perpetuates and people get benefit from it. That doesn't make them nefarious. It's just that they enjoy the benefits that come from it. Um, your friends and neighbors who aren't unplugged, uh, how do they respond when you sort of go down this path? Well, first, Steve, I'd like to clarify that I, I, there are a lot of teachers out there. There are most teachers, I would say, and school administrators are not dubious. They're, they're, they're noble in cause. They became teachers because they want to help children learn. And you know what? I know a lot of teachers that, that I've met throughout my work through the last 10 years that have come to me and said, you know, I left the school system because I do want to help children learn. John Telegato said himself he quit because he was no longer willing to hurt children. Because you get to a point, I guess, where you just say, this isn't really working. I'm part of a broken system. So I don't blame the individual people, and I'm, I'm not accusing individual teachers ever. I would never accuse individual teachers of being uh, dubious or, or nefarious. It's the core of the matter itself, you know. Um, as far as how people react to me, it's not it's not not as 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 I guess abrasive as as you would think. I mean, it seems like such an aggressive idea, and it might sound like that when it's said in in certain ways or or it's promulgated by uh, certain phraseology. However, most of the people in my life and most of the people that I encounter. They're kind of like, yeah, you know, I, I, I get what you're saying. And you know what, Steve, it's because when we look at the, the school system as it is today and we look at the financial problems that it's suffering and just in the news all the time there's some kind of issue with some kind of bullying problem or some kind of testing problem and whether or not we're opting out of testing and kids are graduating without being able to read and, you know, kids are graduating without knowing basic math and the skills assessments are declining. And if we look over the last 30, 40 years, the more money we've put into the system as a whole, the more tax money we've put into it. By their own standards, the test skills are, the test scores are going down and down and down. So when this conversation comes up, in the back of everybody's mind, they already know that there's an issue here, there's a problem here. And not that it's not fixable, it's definitely fixable, but the way to fix it is to stop doing what we're already doing. Now, there was a point where I would say, well, everybody should just pull out of the school system and unplug and you know, embrace home education. But after working for a couple of years, I do realize that this is not something that's completely possible for everyone. So now I also advocate for education reform and changing the system from within because clearly it can't go on like it's going. We have to evolve as a race, and we're still, the, the school system is still operating like, like it did 50 years ago, and it's just archaic, you know. It's time to embrace the modern society, and it's time to change and evolve as a culture. So your original question as to how people react to me, it, 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 normally people just kind of nod and say, yeah, you know, something, something's not quite right. 
Well, the reason I asked that question was because you talked about this being just an extension of being a parent. And I find that that gets us into sort of tricky territory. Uh, one part of that is parents who feel like, you know, I don't have time to educate my kids. And the other part of it is sort of the pushback you, that, that is often given of uh, there are a lot of parents who won't do a good job, and isn't that unfair to their children? Well, it's a multi-part answer. It's not there's not an easy answer to that question. The first the first thing that comes to mind, and parents have said this to me. You know, I would I would pull my kids out of school and I would educate them myself and help them learn myself if I could, but I just don't feel like I can. It's so important that parents understand the only reason we think we can't do it is because we ourselves have been essentially trained to think that we can't. We've been trained to think that learning is such a complicated process that it needs to, it, it can only be done by professionals that have been trained to do it. Now, I, I, I'm, I am sure to always draw a line and differentiate between schooling and learning. Okay, because to me, they're two very separate things. You do have to be trained, and you do require professionals to school, but learning doesn't require anything. We're human beings. We're equipped to learn. We're born to learn. We're curious. A child at three, four, five years old is curious. Lots of children learn how to read and do basic calculations in math and build with blocks and spell their own name and write before they even hit kindergarten because we're natural learners. We learn. And parents are natural lovers. We love our children, and we want what's best for them, and we teach them how to walk, and we teach them how to talk and how to eat and how to relate to others. And then suddenly when it comes to the ABCs, we become dumb. And we think, well, I can't do that. That's complicated. But why? Like, really, ask yourself, why do you think you can't do that? Why do you think you are not equipped to help your child learn? And then they say, okay, well, okay, I understand that, and that's the basics, but what about the, when they get older and it comes to trigonometry and calculus? First of all, think about what you're saying. You're a product of the school system. You went through the system. Most of us went through the system and graduated high school. A lot of us went to college and have college degrees, and yet you don't feel equipped to help your child learn. You know, there's, there's something going on there. It's because you've been conditioned to believe that you can't do it, that it requires someone else, that you need to hand your child over and let them do it. My advice is you can do it, and you don't have to know calculus. All you have to do is know enough to find how your child can learn it when it comes time for them to learn something like that. And that's even if they go in that direction. All right. So that's the first thing I try to tell parents when they say, I don't know if I could do it. The next part of that is there are a lot of parents that feel that it's not an academic thing. It's a, it's a time thing because they both work and they, they just can't be home with the kids. And I understand that. I do understand that. And that, again, is, is multi-part because I, I feel the first part of that is we're in a society that demands that we have status and that we, we have cars and we have bigger houses and, you know, we need all this stuff and we need to keep ourselves busy. And we're also part of a culture that has trained women to believe that we're unworthy unless we're out making a paycheck. Now, I'm not saying anything against working moms. I think it's fine. I work. I run a show. Obviously, that's my business. 
still educating my kids is my top priority. All right. And from my perspective, women can do it all. There are many working mothers out there whose kids are still home educated because learning is not as complicated as you think. You're not taking the classroom home and sitting your child down at a desk for eight hours with a chalkboard. It's not about that. It's not like that. For some families, it does include a lot of book work, and that's fine if that's what works for them. But for a lot of families, it's not like that. It can take place at night. If you have little children and you need to be at work during the day, it's very easy to find babysitting or support, especially if you become part of a, a, a home education co-op or a home education support group. There are ways to make it happen. I know that Lisa Nielsen recently published a, a working parent's guide to home education. So the fact that, that both parents are working that's not, that's not really a reason to say, well, I can't do it. You can do it, all right? Academics is not a reason to say you can't do it because you can do it. Now we come down to where, okay, maybe there are some situations where, uh, and I, I hear this all the time, well, what about the crack parents and what about the parents that are just dumb and they're just not going to do a good job and they're going to, you know, neglect their kids and, you know, whatever. Yeah, I do realize that we're in a, we do live in a society where we have this problem, now, I would, I mean, maybe it's a stretch, but I don't think so. I would venture to guess, and I would blame the system itself for creating this problem in society. Maybe we wouldn't have so, so many malfunctioning and dysfunctional families and crack parents, so to speak, like everyone likes to throw that term around, if we weren't the result of a system that has essentially produced and, and failed us and produced so many kids that, that graduate high school without being able to read and they form all these bad habits in high school. But be that as it may, we do still need some kind of, society does still need some kind of thriving education system. I realize that and I'm willing to support that. There are a couple of things that I feel should probably change, um, but that gets into a, a little bit of politics, and I know that we're run, really not here to talk about that. The thing is, though, I don't think that schools should ever be compulsory or mandatory. I think it should be an option. I don't think home education should be considered the alternative and the weird thing and the bizarre thing. I think it's time for us to embrace as a society, to evolve and to embrace as a society that this is just part of parenting. You know, it, it's just it's just part of it. And the reason why it's it's easier than we think it is is because it does not have to happen like it happens in the classroom. That's what happens in school. The way a home education parent and a home education family operates is not like what you see in the classroom. So it doesn't have to be replicated. It has nothing to do with that. Everyone can do it. It's, part, it's a natural extension of who we are as parents and what we do as parents. And if you absolutely can't, then yes, school is an option, but it should be optional. It should not be our primary knee-jerk reaction, which it is now. The kid turns four years old, we put them in school. It shouldn't be like that. There should always be thought, okay, am I going to utilize the option of school for my child, or am I going to help them discover and learn myself? And, you know, I hope that sums it up. I'm really intrigued by something that we all do which is that we say uh, something should be like this, right? I mean, homeschooling or unschooling unplugged shouldn't be weird, or we should have these options. The, the difficulty is in seeing how we get from one sort of structured, um, highly agreed 
shifts upon narrative to a new narrative that would allow for that kind of flexibility. And um, I, have, I have a hard time believing that logic will be the course that will sway policymakers to give more freedom in education. But I do think that this idea of children's strengths or individual personal learning hold the potential to kind of shift the narrative. Do you see any other places where the, the cultural change could take place around some agreed upon values that would then um, allow us to shift our thinking as a culture about education? You're, are you, you're asking me, uh, I just want you to, to clarify, I, I'm sorry, I want to understand the question correctly, how I think society can embrace this change? Right. I, I don't see, um, I think we're doing something that's really fun to do, which is, it's, you know, we can, uh, a little bit of preaching to the choir, um, we, we, we look at the value and the benefits of uh, unplugging. And yet, that's not likely to actually sway policymakers or even many of our friends and neighbors um, because the larger system exists, um, and this is me interpreting, in part because we've adopted a narrative around education that, that's around testing and it's around sort of the traditional education. So I'm trying to think of how we get from where we are to a system that allows more freedom because uh, I don't think just laying out the logic will do it. Do you see a path? Yeah, okay. I under I understand what you're saying. You know, it's it's this is something that goes back to uh the policy of home education and home education regulations. I'm just gonna use that as an example. There are a lot of states in which a family is free to home educate without notifying the local government or uh, submitting test scores or attendance records or anything like that. And there are other states that are considered to be high regulation. Now, something that happens quite often among the homeschool community is we try to maintain our home education freedoms. And then in states that have high regulation, uh, a lot of home education advocates are involved in trying to change the policy there. And one mistake that I, I think they always make uh, is going in there with a, a prepared list of the benefits of home education and how smart home educated kids are. But you're right, that is that alone doesn't really do it. It doesn't sway policymakers. Something that does work, Steve, and that has been working and that I've seen the evidence of is dialogue like you and I are having and talking about it and just letting people know that education is changing and evolving. And I mean, even within the school system, now yes, there are a lot of home educators out there. There are two So I've lost Lorette. In, are you still there? Yeah, I'm still here. I lost you for about 30 seconds there. You're saying there are a lot of I'm home educators Okay, there are about uh, 2 million families, a little over 2 million families now in the United States alone that are home educating. That alone by itself tells me that people are getting fed up with the way the school system is and the way education operates right now and they're pulling out of it. Uh, but even within the system itself, and you know this to be true also just from the work I know that you've done with other advocates out there, 
there people are ready for change and they're saying we, we don't we don't want this anymore we don't want the standardized testing anymore we don't want the the unions operating the way they do anymore we want more freedom for the children more freedom for the kids there are democratic schools uh coming up everywhere opening up everywhere there are alternative education options that are opening up everywhere. I did an interview the other day with Jerry Mintz from uh, Alternative Education Resource Organization, and he talked about how the movement has grown so much in the last 20 years because people are ready. People are ready to evolve, and they're ready to grow, and they're ready to embrace a more individualized kind of education that isn't so uh, one-size-fits-all, and it, it's just not working. It doesn't work for a lot of kids, and a lot of the schools are just not ready to embrace advancements in innovation and technology and kind of come into the, the century that we're in. So I think it's happening anyway. I think there are a lot of ways that it's happening. Now, no, going in with, to a, to a uh, town hall meeting or a legislation session with a, a prepared list of how many homeschoolers won the spelling bee last year is certainly not going to help. That no, they don't care about that because when it comes down to it, the policymakers and the corruption that's going on in politics, it's not about the academic success of the kids. It's never about the academic success of the kids. And I've learned that because I'm very politically active and I'm always involved in legislation and protecting the rights of home educators. And I've learned just from being involved in that they say they care about whether or not the kid is at home really learning something, but it's not about that. It's about how much money they can get through taxation and, you know, get into the system. And, and it goes back to corporations and bankers and lobbyists and who's taking money from who. It's not about the education. So going in there and talking about how smart homeschoolers are doesn't do anything. You're absolutely right. But what does do something is getting more families to understand what home education is and pulling out of the system, more teachers pulling out of the system and saying, I really do want to help kids, so I'm going to join an alternative education center or I'm going to open up an alternative education center. And that's happening more and more and more. More and more and more we see World Learning Center is a, a former teacher. All these alternative learning opportunities online, virtual learning opportunities that are coming up all over the place. It's just happening because people are turning to it and saying, this is stale, this isn't helping my child, and I want something new, I want something different. So the answer is this, this conversation that we're having, and then going out and having more conversations and saying, you know, I want something better. My kid deserves better, my family deserves better, and I want something better for them. So we're going to switch the Q&A in, um, in about seven minutes. Uh, I'm going to ask a question that, I, that I'm pretty sure I know the answer to from you, but I still would like to connect the dots here. I've been somewhat shocked at the lack of critical thinking around the economic and political decisions of the last four years. Um, in particular, the degree to which we have sort of uncritically allowed the financial system to um, to repair itself, uh, and 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 I'm not going to go too deep here. To, my colors don't need to show too brightly on this show, but I, is there a connection between our inability to understand the lack of checks and balances and the self-serving nature of our current government and our school system? Oh yeah, 
Absolutely. Absolutely. 100% yes, there's, there's a connection. When I was in high school, I was required to take only one civics course in which there really wasn't much taught. There really wasn't much learned. I, I really didn't absorb much. It was very easy. Uh, all I had to do really to pass that course was go out and collect signatures for a quote-unquote cause, and I could pick any community cause I wanted. So I really didn't learn about government. I really didn't learn about the structure of the economy and how the economy works. I was only required to take one class on economics, and it was very, very basic accounting, bookkeeping type of stuff and what the stock market was. But I truly didn't learn about the economy until I went on to further education and went on to the working world in college, and I was living in the world, and I had no choice but to understand economics and the economy because I was part of it, and I, I wanted to make sure that I gave myself a stable and steady income, so I had to understand it. And it took, it took years, and I'm still learning it. Okay, And I'm just an example. I'm an isolated example. But if you think about it, the typical school environment, public school environment, and this is a government school environment, they don't use that classical kind of critical thinking uh, education style anymore. It's, it's a thing of the past. They're, they're not worried about it. They're not worried about teaching the kids about the economy. They're not worried about teaching kids about critical thinking. Uh, the art of language is a lost art. The art of communication is a lost art. They, kids can't communicate as well as they could 50 years ago coming out of high school. The education that they have in American history is skewed. They're getting it from a textbook. Okay, And you have to always think about who wrote the textbook. And what was the agenda of the company that wrote the textbook? What was behind that? And that's what they're being fed. That's what they're being given is this very narrow and focused diet of this is American history, this is the economy, this is politics, this is all you need to, know, do, this is all you need to know, now go out and buy stuff and live in the world. But when you're outside of that, when you're unplugged from that, you have the whole world as your palette from which to learn. And that's when you can really sharpen critical thinking skills and you can really understand the economy. I believe that there are so many home-educated kids that are 9, 10, 11 years old that understand politics, government, and the economy better than the average high school student because we're free. We're free to learn these things. Okay. Now, I'll even go as far as, as to say that it's purposely not taught correctly in school because if you have an entire generation after generation after generation of a population that does not understand politics and does not understand the economy, then they're very easily manipulated, they're very easily swayed, and you could pull their vote in either direction. The debates, okay, as a matter of fact, there's a primary going on right now, and I wonder how many of us are even aware that there's a primary going on right now to select the nominee. The debates, if you watch the debates, these, these, it's like a circus. It's like a joke. And if you compare that to debates that happened 60 years ago, 50 years ago, we could see the decline in, in the way they communicate, in the way they speak, and what people understand. Because they're speaking to the general public on a fifth grade reading level because that's where the general public is at, and it's sad. Now, again, I'm generalizing and I'm not speaking of individual people because I'm sure there are a lot of us that are aware and we're sharp and, and we've learned, but those of us that really understand politics and really understand the economy, 
we're not easily manipulated. We can think critically. And most of the time, we learned that outside of the grade school, public school system. Okay, so yes, I absolutely think that there is a connection between the government school system and our general inability to think critically and understand the political environment. You know, it does feel like, even for the most skeptical, that there's a connection between this requirement that when you join a company or a corporation, that you basically give up your freedoms. You give up the freedom to speak truthfully. Um, and the sort of um, fashion in which that's sort of trained into us in schools to, to expect that and, ha and to be okay with it. Um, yeah, I think you've done a good job of going down that path as far as we need to go tonight. Okay, so I'm going to open it up to Q&A now. Uh, there have been a lot of questions in the chat, and I know I've missed them, but I'm really hopeful that uh, you now have this chance to ask Lorette some questions that you have about uh, homeschooling, unschooling, and unplugging. Um, and if you wouldn't mind, please post them again or raise your hand and I'll give you the microphone and you can ask your question through audio. To raise your hand, it's the third icon over in the participant window. You click on that and you raise your hand. Uh, and I'm just going to start with the ones that pop up now, so please put them in. Uh, Roseanne asks, where are some learning centers? What are some examples? Well, it, it depends upon uh, where you are, how accessible these are. There are a lot of learning centers, virtual learning centers that are available online uh, that you can learn online. You can take entire courses online sometimes. And those, I have a lot of those available on my website, uh, unplugmom.com, if you look under resources. But you can just Google virtual learning centers or virtual learning, uh, and a whole bunch of options will come up, okay? And I can also provide you later on with some links, Steve, that we can, that we can pass on. But as far as physical learning centers, I know of many throughout the country that exist. You could, if you Google subdury schools, alternative, alternative learning centers, raw learning, and also the most important resource to that is if you go to educationrevolution.org. Okay, that's Alternative Education Resource Organization. It's educationrevolution.org. And you can find where brick-and-mortar alternative learning centers exist. Okay. Uh, Sherry wants to know, once I become a parent, how would I go about homeschooling my child or children? Well, there... You're looking, you're looking for uh, specific instructions, and I understand that because that's what most parents do. I did the same thing when I decided that I wasn't going to send my, my oldest to school when she was three when I decided that. And I said, okay, now what do I do? And I looked for instructions, and the first thing I did was I, I paid like $1,200 for this boxed curriculum. I'll never do that again because it was essentially what I was doing was bringing the classroom home. So as far as uh, what to do first, the thing that I always recommend to parents that are new to home education is to find a local support group. And there are support groups no matter where you live. It's as easy as going to Yahoo and going to the Yahoo groups and just typing in homeschool, and you'll find a local support group. There are also statewide support groups, and there are nationwide support groups that you can join. There's, they're all over Facebook. They're all over Yahoo. Once you have a support group, 
it opens up an entire world of opportunities to you. That's when it starts to get a little overwhelming because that's when the choices, you're just kind of overwhelmed with everything there is. But you have to just take it one step at a time. So if your child is little and very young, there's really not much you need to do. Just be an engaged parent. Be with your child. Read to them. Learn who they are. Let them learn who you are. Get to know them and follow their cues. They want to learn. So all you have to do is follow their lead. And then as they get older, you'll just know. You'll just feel it and you'll say, okay, you know, you're ready to learn how to read or you're ready to start learning math. And it'll go on that way. If, you're, if you have an older child that you're pulling out of the school system, there is a period of kind of what's called uh, quote-unquote de-schooling that is recommended. And that's just a matter of that needs to happen for the whole family, though, not just for the child. It's a matter of unplugging your mind and getting used to the fact that you're not doing school. And I think that's the hardest part for people to do. That was the hardest part for me to kind of break free of that idea that I need to do what they do in the classroom. I have rejected that system. I have opted out of that system. I don't want to replicate it at home. Now, that doesn't mean, uh, you know, by definition, complete radical unschooling. For some families, it means that, and that's great for them. For my family and for most home education families, though, it doesn't mean that. It just means doing it your way in the way that works best for your child. Now, as far as recommendations on different methodologies, and I want to make the distinction between methods and systems, okay? A methodology of learning is, is just a philosophy, there are many different ones out there. I have lots of information on that on my website, lots of interviews with, with different spokespeople from different methodologies, ranging from uh, very rigorous academic training all the way to the other end of the spectrum, which is unschooling. And if you just go to unpluggedmom.com, you can find resources there. Or again, if you just type in, uh, in Google homeschool learning methods, you'll come up with a lot of options. So, you know, read learn, get more familiar with what home education is, and as time goes by, you'll find that those answers to the questions that you have are going to come to you, but I can't give them to you. You have to find them because it has to be what works for you and your individual family. That is the key. You're pulling out of a system that is one size fits all because you want something better and more tailored to your family because you know you deserve it. So Alexa wants to know, as a teacher, how can she help to change the system and help it evolve? Well, what a lot of teachers are doing that are choosing to remain in the system is they're becoming very vocal about what they feel some of the problem areas are. All right, there's a growing number of teachers that are rejecting testing, and there's, they don't like it because they themselves don't feel that it's fair that they should be measured by the test scores, and I agree. And they themselves, uh, they also feel that their students' ability and their students' intellect shouldn't be measured by the test scores because they're standardized, and standardized means one size fits all, and that's just a really unfair way to treat people. We're individual people. You know, we're not, we're not just some, some sheep. We're not one size fits all. So the teachers that are choosing to remain in the system are becoming vocal about things like that, testing or better ways to handle peers or uh, smaller classroom sizes or more innovative ways to teach. 
and they're they're becoming more vocal within their own school, within their own community, in the parent-teacher associations, and some of them are taking it as far as legislation. They're getting politically active, and they're getting involved in rewriting legislation or maybe even sometimes running for office so that they could be the legislators that are creating change. And they're trying very hard to work from within. Now, it sounds like a, like an undoable task because you feel like, wow, what, but you're going up against the monster, you know. Hey, history has a way of changing. Things change. And they don't just change by themselves. Every change that we've ever experienced in humanity was because people stood up and said, this is no good anymore. We need to change it. And a lot of teachers are just choosing to do that. The way to start is just by opening up your mouth and creating a, you know, I guarantee that there, if you know, if you feel like, gosh, you know, I, I really want to be able to stay with what I'm doing because I do want to help children. I do have a passion for this. You know that there are other teachers out there that feel the way you do. Start a dialogue. Start a conversation. See how you can get involved in positive change. Okay, this being involved with an organization such as yours, Steve, is a great way to, uh, a great step in the right direction. A lot of teachers also are just simply blatantly choosing to opt out of the system altogether and join up with a, a co-op, a home education co-op, or a community learning alternative, or just becoming home education advocates themselves. I have many of my, my friends in my own local home education groups that are former teachers that are home educating their kids and now they've become advocates for pulling out of the system or they start alternative learning centers. Sometimes it's right out of their own house. It starts out as tutoring and then they build up. A, we have one, Debbie, a friend of mine named uh, Debbie, calls herself the barefoot school mom. She's a former teacher and what she decided to do was come leave the system and devote her talents and her services to her community. And she goes around to different homeschool organizations and teaches them science and Spanish. So there are a lot of different options. It depends upon what's speaking to you and what you feel is in your capacity. Some of us are very loud and abrasive, and we're meant to stay inside the system and change it from within. Some of us are meant to leave it and do some work outside of it. So you just have to reflect on what is, what is your goal and what are your talents, and how do you think those talents can be best utilized in promulgating change? Okay, we got a question from Chris who asked, how do you select what areas you teach? Politics, economics, math, foreign languages, writing, reading, sciences, geography. The list is endless, isn't it? Yes, of course the list is endless because we live in an infinite world and there is everything to learn. I don't, I don't categorize subjects, and you'll find that most home educators don't. We recognize that learning is a whole experience, and it's an integrated experience. Like we ha we're in the habit of asking kids, and sometimes my kids get asked this by uh, people that are, you know, kind of still in the, the school state of mind. They'll ask them, "What's your favorite subject?" And my kids kind of just look at them, you know. And now they're getting a little older, so they kind of just say, I, I just like learning, you know. And we're so used to that because we're so used to categorizing everything and saying, well, now it's time to learn history. Now we're going to stop learning history, and we're going to learn math. Now we're going to stop learning math, and we're going to learn spelling. But that's not really how learning is supposed to happen in the natural human mind. It's supposed to just happen as an integrated and whole process. 
So as far as choosing what subjects I'm going to teach or whatever, it, there, there really isn't much where I have to sit down and say, okay, I'm going to teach politics and now I'm going to teach this. It's just integrated into our lives. My husband and I are politically active. So by default, my kids understand politics. We have open communication in my house. We talk about things openly. They understand that there's a, a presidential election coming up. They know what it's about. They know what the delegation process is. They know what the voting process is. They understand the difference between a popular vote. They, they, they understand legislation because it's part of their lives. They're with us. They're not locked away somewhere else for eight hours a day. And they do have their social lives, and they go on, and they do their things. But our family is, is our focal point. So they understand these things. It becomes part of who they are. And I'm talking as young as seven years old. Math is a part of our lives. Now, yes, we do book work, and I have workbooks that do supplement our learning. But it's just part of our lives. They control their own finances. They control their allowance because that's what you do. Any person does that. We control our, our finances. When they're writing, when they're communicating, that's how they learn to write because they're learning to communicate. Anything that they write, I'll go and I'll help them make it better. I make sure that they have the correct punctuation and so on and so forth. But they could be writing about anything. They could be writing about history. They could be writing a letter to their friend. It's all integrated. And then what you do is you go out and you find books to supplement that. Now, some parents don't do that at all. They don't believe in using workbooks of any kind, and they don't use those supplements, but a lot of us do. And that's up to you. You have to find that individual uh, treasure for yourself. However, there is not that much effort that I have to put into choosing uh, particular topics. Like right now, I'm going to teach about the economy. It's just integrated into living. And when you're away from the system that categorizes and you're away from a system that compartmentalizes and your mind begins to become more and more free, it, it, the transition in you happens naturally. And when the transition happens naturally in you, it reflects in your family and the way you live your life. Okay, we've got a number of questions, more than we have time for. I'm going to pick and choose a little here. Um, Scott wants to know, what's the state's responsibility for funding innovative learning? Uh, as far as home education or in the school system? Is there a way so to clarify I think, that? Uh, I don't know that we have time to have Scott clarify, but I think the question is, uh, maybe more broadly, uh, what's the role of government funding in education? Okay, well, if we're talking about government funding for education, I come from the school of thought that there should be no federal board of education. It should be brought back to the state level so the state can handle it. And the people that actually live in that state can decide how the money is appropriated for the school system within that state. So it should be left up to each individual state and even more each individual community. Like if I belong to a community and we utilize a particular school, it should be up to the parents and the members of that community to decide how the money is appropriated for that community. It really should be very, very localized because people have a right to decide on a local level. Again, the whole one-size-fits-all across the country is not really fair because we all have different needs and different values and different things that we find important 
in the school system. There are many communities that would believe uh, that we need to have more technology and innovative solutions in public schools, and there are some communities that believe that they don't want that in their schools. They have the right to decide that, therefore they have the right to decide how their money is being spent. Government's role should be very, very limited as far as that. It should be more left to the people of the community uh, and the individual state to decide how the money is spent. Okay. Uh, we're at the end of our hour. As a courtesy to our guests, we always end on time. So, Lorette, thank you so much for coming. We've been talking with Lorette Lynn about unplugged education, and she is the unplugged mom, and she can be found at unpluggedmom.com. Is that right? Yes, and I'm open to uh, emails and questions. I have a couple of other people that work for me that help answer questions. So if you have more questions, feel free to email them to info at unpluggedmom.com. Lorette, I'm clapping for you. You can't see it because you're on the phone. But for those of you who would I like know, to applaud. I'm so sorry about that. <laughs> you can hit the applause. Look for the smiley face in the participant window and then scroll down to applause. And that's your way of clapping. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Really appreciate your time. Thanks, everybody, for joining us. Don't miss Alan Blankstein on Thursday talking about improving individual schools. And then Khalid Smith and Jane Hart next week. Khalid's going to talk about Startup Weekend EDU. And Jane Hart's going to talk about social learning. Uh, Lorette, I'm sure there's lots more fun for the two of us, especially with the Alternate Education Conference. So we'll look forward to future conversations. And thanks again. Absolutely. Thank you, Steve. It's been a pleasure. Okay. Thanks, everybody, for coming. Uh, the, you know the drill. In order for the recording to process, we do have to bump you out of the room. Sorry to do that. And tonight, I can't stick around at all because I have another appointment. So I'm going to turn the recording off and then just invite you to click on the X at the top right to leave or file an exit. Thanks. Have a great night or day, depending on where you are. <laughs>